0: The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in the satsang, I would like to approach a subject related to our Sunday meditation. As you know those of you who are in the school for the last two weeks we had a couple we had a series of meditations consecrated to the Easter time and the holy light meditation specially consecrated or connected to the Orthodox Easter and you have seen in the program that there is a so-called Shambhala Easter on Sunday it's the last it's like three Easter celebrations one after another This Shambhala Easter, uh, in the country where I come from, it's not called Shambhala Easter because Shambhala is an unknown Sanskrit word for that part of the world. It is called the Easter of the Gentle Ones. And uh, it basically reflects folk traditions, which says that um, the gentle ones, which are the Mahatmas, which are the great spirits that are blessing the humanity and which are supervising the humanity. They do not have time to celebrate any proper Easter because the Easter time is a time, at least in the Christian part of the world, with a lot of energy being unleashed. Exactly as we speak about the new year, this is the fundamental secret of the new year meditation that's why in agama we have this christmas and new year it started from new year the new year meditation is the big thing is the big story there and uh, the idea therefore being that because Shum- because easter is an event of uh, remarkable importance for some people in this world for some groups Of people in this world of course it was so much more so a hundred years ago perhaps than today in terms of religious fervor and because of this uh, the people of Shambhala preferred to consecrate their time to burning negative karma emanating positive energy from Ajna chakra subliming purifying cleansing blessing and all the other things which uh, shambhala does and uh, because they still want to celebrate it's a day uh, as i said last week uh, this being a day of spiritual joy a day of spiritual celebration they would also like to celebrate but uh, they celebrate later however Uh, the interesting part which comes and that's one of the main things which I want to bring some additional elements about tonight is the fact that uh, the people who speak about this they consider that these mysterious beings, the gentle ones they are uh, very physically present like when we talk about Shambhala normally most people figure some sort of invisible island, universe, zone, that you close your eyes, you can visualize Shambhala somewhere out there. And uh, sure, Shambhala is uh, in the etheric world, in the astral world, wherever it is. And we could get some positive energy from them. And then Shambhala is, in a certain way, almost imponderable as imponderable as the concept of god as many of you are aware of it and all of you will learn in due time this force this concept this principle which we call the wall of silence <coughs> including uh, or together with the principle of aparigraha of non possessiveness of detachment Makes that in the in this universe in which we live the demonstration of certain spiritual realities is pretty much impossible and it is impossible because if it would be possible to crushingly and hundred percent demonstrate the spiritual reality then there would be absolutely no choice for any one of you not only that you in your life before this time in your life or for some of you unfortunately even sometime after this period in your life it will be possible to have doubts so big that uh, you will deny your own spiritual nature it's, it sounds sad but actually it does happen and it has happened in history All the time and um, this doubt is considered by the people who have surpassed this level as a lack of grace it is one of the great Christian Saints Augustine who says that doubt is the sign of lack of grace like in the case of Jesus you don't see doubt Jesus never says I wonder if I'm the Son of God actually so If he is mad, he is very, very certain about his madness. He does not suffer from doubt. And this doubt, which is considered to be by Descartes, normal functioning of the mind, in spirituality is considered to be simply a disease, an incompleteness, a cancer of the soul, And as long as the human being has not reached a certain threshold in their spiritual development, this doubt is inevitable. It is like even Jesus after he spent quite a while together with his 12 apostles, when he came back, the apostles, I mean, how much changed could he have been? So that the apostles, like Thomas, they said, maybe it's not you. Maybe you are some other dude who appeared right now and you say you are Jesus. And, of course, this new Jesus after resurrection was to, knew each and every one by the name, obviously seemed to know a lot of details. He had the memory of facts. And yet Thomas said, show me the wounds, the scars. The wounds, because uh, I want to see if it's really you. And Jesus, although he often scolded them and he said, Oh, ye of little faith. No, he made Peter walk on water. And after six meters, he let go. And then Peter instantaneously doubt. Like, am I really walking on water? This is not possible. I've never seen it before. And then he flushed in the water, ready to drown. And Jesus did not really get angry. It was more like a lesson. And he said, oh, you have little doubt. Why did you doubt? But Descartes would have said, but it is my right to doubt. Yeah, when you are not with Jesus. For Jesus, doubt is a disease. It's not a normal functioning of the mind. So Jesus did not get irritated at Thomas and said, you are a total moron. I even got crucified for you idiots, and you are still doubting, I'm talking to you, and you want to see my wounds, you know. It's like, are you brain dead, or what's happening to you? He did not. He peacefully showed his wounds, and so on, because Jesus knew, even a man like Thomas, who left us in history a gospel, there exists a gospel of Thomas, not recognized by the official Orthodox and Catholic Church, but being part of the Gnostic Scriptures and of the apocryphal Gospels, even Thomas, who had a great destiny ahead of him, who became a great man, even Thomas was full of doubt. And that's why when we speak about Shambhala, and if I tell you that John, the Apostle of Christ, or uh, Swami Shivananda are now in Shambhala, you can say, yeah, right. This is something which is, uh, first of all, challenging the indemonstrable belief that there is a consciousness which is permanent and immortal called spirit, which materialists deny fiercely. And that there exists a continuity of consciousness after you die, so it's still you in a certain way. And therefore, so this challenges this. Like I'm not sure I'm ready to accept that Swami Shivananda still lives. That's, that's as much as believing in God. That's as much as believing in life after death, after all. So that's a challenging thing anyway and then you are telling me that swami shivananda is in shambala maybe god is a joker and swami shivananda is in hell maybe there is no shambala maybe there is a lottery when you die and swami shivananda lost that lottery like i have the right to doubt pretty much everything until i have reached to that experience even if I had a vision of Swami Shivananda, or I hear Swami Shivananda telling me some words, I can say, as brain scientists say today, that it's all a hallucination. Materialistic scientists don't believe that if in your mind you see Swami Shivananda, it's actually Swami Shivananda. Brain scientists believe that you are having a temporal lobe, epileptic seizure when this is happening. All these religious visions and so on are considered in brain science just defective or disturbed episodes in your brain. And therefore, the story with Shambhala, unfortunately, classifies for people with spiritual doubts still there. Like, right, now you are not talking to us about an old man with a white beard who lives who lives on the clouds of the sky now you are not talking to us about the fact that we are living forever and ever in some kingdom of God or in some afterlife or something or that we reincarnate if you prefer that one so now you are not talking about this you are talking just about another dream that there is also the dream that there is a congregation of enlightened beings that 150,000 enlightened beings are floating in mid-air somewhere and that they telepathically and energetically can connect with us. These demonstrations are so difficult to make and that's why you can think about it. No like there are people who pretend they can bend spoons there was an ex-NASA scientist who made workshops across the world where he brought to every workshop about a few thousand pieces of cutlery, spoons and forks. And people were bending them during the two-day workshop. And like it worked. This guy did workshop after workshop in every major city where people were bending spoons and forks. And if you are going, if I think it's called the Randy Corporation or the Rand Corporation, one of those, I think it's from James Randy or something, there is a prize of $1 million instituted on the Internet. There is a live cam focused on a spoon. It's 24-7 streaming, and if you can bend it, via your telekinetic thing and then if you are ready to go in front of this Commission and bend one more in front of them physically you will get a million dollars it's promised on the internet guess what nobody has cashed that price which for the skeptics means there is no psychokinesis nobody can bend spoons because somebody would have gotten a million dollars there must be somebody like Swami who wants to build a Yogaville or an ashram who could use a million dollars. So if they really can, why don't they come to bend our internet spoon? Other challenges, similar challenges have been launched and there are other, again, the list could continue. I just gave you a typical example, which according to the wall of silence, is very clearly understandable because there are many people who simply don't want to cross a certain line for a variety of karmic reasons which they consider that those lines should not be crossed so what am I trying to tell you here I'm trying to tell you here that if God is a legend for you if reincarnation is a myth for you if spirit is just a hypothesis for you And so is Shambhala. Shambhala cannot be demonstrated more than God or than telekinesis. Parapsychology exists. If you read books of parapsychology written by scientists, your jaw will drop completely because it's like when you read those books, you get indignant, like why don't we learn these things in school? Because this is not hippies or... Spirit is mediums who write these things. These are solid scientists with laboratory experiments, and still you never learn about it because, in a certain way, nobody can push that evidence beyond a certain limit. And the same thing goes for alternative cures for cancer, for free energy, for anti gravitation, and for all sorts of other things which would have a gigantic karmic impact upon humanity. And therefore, they are not at the latitude of each Tom, Dick, and Harry to do, but they are governed by a higher cosmic law. And what I'm trying to say in this long introduction about the Shambhala thing is precisely the fact that actually the phenomenology of Shambhala, the history of Shambhala, the info which we have about Shambhala, like this mysterious little legend or myth which exists throughout Eastern European countries about the Easter of the gentle ones, one week after the Orthodox Easter, all these things are coming to the point where people would say, oops, now you are talking about some dude from a village who went to a creek in the mountain to drink some fresh water, and there he saw tumbling down that creek from uphill, where there was no village or living person in some inhabitable mountain area, he saw tumbling down some red painted eggshells, like some Easter eggs, the shells of some Easter eggs, because that's how it came to be. This is how these legends appeared. So, who the heck is uphill? In inhabitable mountains where the locals know there's nobody out there there's no village there's no settlement there's no hermit there's nobody because those are deserted mountains and I'm seeing in the creek some reminiscence of eggshells like somebody cracked a red egg a kilometer upstream and then threw the shell into the river and now I happen to see it this is that kind of event like the experiments of Wilhelm Reich or other things which is rocking the boat which is rocking the boat big time like oops now it's not a hypothesis now I'm talking about something which I'm touching and seeing like Thomas when he touched the wounds of Christ No, like this starts becoming an evidence of course it's not a modern scientific evidence by the standards of modern science But still, it is a very provocative thing which is brought there. So what I'm trying to tell is this, the the subject of Shambhala is coming dangerously close to providing evidence. Because as long as you say, I close my eyes and I can feel Shambhala, any psychologist can say, bollocks, it's all in your mind. There has been an experiment done by the ultra skeptic hypnotherapist and NLP man called Darren Brown, in which Darren Brown quotes the fact that one of the most simple flopped experiments in parapsychology was the following You put a screen, and in that screen, you put two holes just enough for you to stick your arms through them. So you are blindfolded or something. You stick your arms through a screen, which allows no vision of any kind. And on the other side of the screen, as you stand with your palms like this, there will be a person who will bring their palm to, let's say, about 10, 7 centimeters from your palm. According to the parapsychological theories, there is supposed to be a life force, a prana. So if you bring your palm near mine, and if I can indeed feel energy, and feeling energy is not some bullshit, as some people claim, then if I'm indeed a sensitive person, I should feel, you should do a sequence of 10, and I should be able to say right, right, left, right, 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 left, 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 right, and I should be 100% accurate, which would demonstrate that I can feel something banal. I can feel some other person's life force. And Darren Brown claims that funnily enough, when parapsychologists tried this experiment with some so-called healers and clairvoyants, they flopped miserably, all of them, demonstrating that the belief in a life force is just a utopia funnily enough the same Darren Brown says he can do it by NLP and he does a series of four readings or something and he hits 100% but he says that's not clairvoyance that's not feeling of energy just this is just my knowledge of people's cerebral brain mechanisms which everybody would challenge and would say finally you say that you do it like this that's your belief system you think that you do it by this but the final fact is that you did it five times out of five so actually you do feel the energy that's the funny thing but you don't call it feeling the energy because you filter it through a different system and you say this is not feeling the energy I'm just doing NLP or self-hypnosis or something. Final result being actually just the same. And as Jesus said, the tree shall be known by its fruits. It's the fruits which matter ultimately. What am I trying to tell you here again? I'm trying to say that even parapsychological things are subjected to this wall of silence. It's possible for individuals to break through But outsiders will not be able to break it. I explained all that, that it's about the huge amount of karma involved into these things. And because of this this story with Shambhala, as I said, is coming very, very close. Because many people say, yeah, we heard about Shambhala. Where I close my eye and I feel Shambhala, this is like the hand experiments of Darren Brown. You know, it's like I feel Shambhala. Somebody will say this is pure self-suggestion and it's not Shambhala. Oh, but I felt so good, yeah. It, that's also called self-suggestion, you know. can push this self-suggestion idea to any limit. And that's why when you are confronted with a totally agnostic, atheistic, skeptical person, no way to demonstrate that kind of thing and you know of course unless you have a special warrant from God and you can completely bust their limits down but usually that is not happening because busting somebody's limits down is like a rape it's like a religious rape it's like you are forcing a person to endorse a belief which they didn't have before and as you understand, some of you understand and some of you will understand in due time, the divine consciousness has in its plan for the human beings to respect freedom. Like the freedom of conscience, this freedom of choice, has to be preserved at all cost, because if a human being acts outside of this freedom, then his or her actions have no value spiritually. They are actions which are dictated by fear, conformism, or anything else. And therefore, they cannot be considered a spiritual thing. As Jesus would have said, God wants you to love him. Not to fear him. Not to try to bargain with him. It has to be 100% that kind of involvement. And because of this, don't fret. I am telling you sincerely that every human being is uh, encountering doubts, is encountering doubts. The mind is built in this way. Paramahamsa Yogananda describes in one chapter of his book, A State of Cosmic Consciousness, and in the next chapter of his book he describes very candidly how he went to his guru Sri Yukteswar. And he said, show me God. And Sri Yukteswar looked at him like, are you moron? Haven't you been yesterday in Samadhi? Isn't that God? Like, what are you asking about? I can witness to the same. I had one evening a state of Samadhi. Next morning I was walking through town and my monkey mind said, and what if this God which you pretend you have experienced last night does not exist? Because indeed, according to the mind, I had absolutely no proof. I had only a certitude, like my heart knew for sure. But my mind reserved the right to express stupid questions. And therefore, um, this doubt exists forever. Even Jesus, who humiliated himself and accepted to be crucified, and went beyond that by surrendering even to the process of normal bardo and death, even Jesus at some point discreetly, he wailed by saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? While of course it's obvious that God had not abandoned Jesus, but Jesus experiencing crucifixion and death through a human body, he was human in a certain way, like you and I. He had to experience the the imperfection of the human nature. And the imperfection of the human nature contained even this, that at some point he felt like God. He said, I am God. I and my father are one and the same. That God had abandoned him because he was suffering too much and things were too horrible. And thus, What I'm saying here is never expect your doubt to be removed completely until it is removed. There comes a day distant for some and very near for some. There comes a day when like Buddha, you say my doubt has been removed. But until that day is coming, (coughs) um, one... As to accept this doubt so the same story goes with Shambhala Shambhala is then for many people a legend and you know the fact that some peasant said that they found eggshells in a mountain creek is not a scientific evidence maybe a joker put it there maybe somebody did some unusual hiking exactly in that day Maybe that peasant or those peasants were just hysteric mitomaniacs, like people who hysterically were mentally disabled to just tell lies, chronical liars, pathological liars. No, there are a lot of ways of putting down each and every one of these things. And that's why tonight I don't claim I can remove your doubt although Shambhala is coming so nearly close to it. Only if you are personally, physically called to Shambhala, and if you'll go to Shambhala, then you might say that your doubt must be eliminated finally. Eventually, even that human nature being what it is, even that is doubtful. You know the very story of uh, The Lost Horizon, the famous novel which made history, which is about the Shangri-La. Shangri-La has become such a popular name that there are even uh, chains of hotels, luxury hotels, called Shangri-La throughout the world, one of them in Bangkok itself. And the Shangri-La, it being the synonym of uh, a place, the Valley of Enlightened People, the Valley of Nirvana. And the very Lost Horizon is about people who get to Shangri-La and then they want to get out of there they found the place of peace they found the place of wisdom they found the place of physical immortality they found shambhala but they don't have snooker tables in shangri-la and they would like to play some some pool no is that right yes the human mind is a stupid monkey <clears throat> never forget that ramakrishna put a person in samadhi. Put several. Put a person in samadhi who, after three days, came and said, "Stop my state of samadhi because I cannot do my job in the railway company." Like, excuse my French, but fuck the railway company. When you are in, like, what does that matter compared to Shambhala, to Nirvana, to enlightenment? This guy was about to obtain spiritual immortality and he was wailing that he couldn't complete his job for the railway company. Like it basically had no relevance, but his monkey mind was not prepared. He didn't have the Ishvara Pranidana. He didn't have the aspiration. He hadn't done enough practice to be able to stay concentrated and to ignore. He was not used to fight with the monkey mind and to make fun of the monkey mind. And therefore, he took his monkey mind a little bit too seriously and that made him lose the state of Samadhi 20 years later when Ramakrishna was not alive anymore this guy said now I'm sorry how stupid and weak I was tough luck too late because that was a one in a gazillion chance for a human being to just have a permanent state of Samadhi out of grace just like this so Again and again, uh, the story about Shambhala is bringing us close to some miraculous thing. Um, I wanted to share with you some of the historical folk evidence in many, I held many lectures about Shambhala along the years, and maybe some of you have heard some of those. We are even preparing to finalize the transcript of one of them and to have it published like a little brochure because every year people want to know about Shambhala and sometimes they have access to those lectures. Sometimes we play them here in the school when I'm physically absent from the school, we play them as video satsangs. And uh, I made many such lectures, but in those lectures I never had the time or the, you know, the patience to just bring together the evidence, the documentary thing, showing to you that this story of Shambhala, as fantastic as it is, it has left a lot of landmarks in human history which are coming close to a very, very high probability. You know, like if there would be one story, two, three, you would still shrug your shoulders. When we are having 20 historical corroborating stories then we start thinking you know either there is a gang of jokers who does uh, crop circles along the history and they try to convince us of some stupid thing or this can be no coincidence and then uh, my doubts are a little bit lighter like there seems to be some evidence in that direction before i tell you something about the historical evidence i shall make allowance for about 20 minutes for the ignorance of those of you who have never listened one of my lectures on shambhala or read any of the materials on shambhala and who therefore are now quite a bit uh, ignorant and uh, sunday you are going if you join it if you are going to find yourself into some strange meditation where well, you don't really even know what it means on the schedule of the school. It's just written like the Shambhala Easter, and maybe if you Google it, you are just getting a something, and even that is very, very foggy. That's why it is my duty, with the risk that some of you will hear the same thing in a great speed, to just give you a few landmarks about this Shambhala story, so you know what we're talking about. The... Shambala story in spirituality is just the logical conclusion of eternal life. I cannot convince you that there is eternal life, but if there is, then all the Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, Christian, Islamic, <clears throat> Sufi that's still Islamic, and the Shinto and um, Sikh and Jain, uh, and Zoroastrian and whatever other saints or enlightened beings have reached divinity in the history of this earth, then all of them are still out there somewhere. And therefore the question is, where are they? What are they presently doing? And are they together? And how many of them are there? And stuff like, and what do they do? And is there any way to interact with them Etc., etc. So, the idea of Shambhala is—it's not just the idea; it's a—it's a—it's a tradition which exists in Asia. But as you are going to see, it has its counterparts even in Europe. This tradition tells us that indeed, the enlightened beings of the history of this planet—at least of this Manvantara, of this cycle of twenty-six thousand years. They are grouped somewhere. They are about between 100,000 to 150,000 Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in numbers. They are accompanied by probably 10 times over their number of people who haven't reached enlightenment, but who are like karma yogis, devoted karma yogis of those from Shambhala. So they would be called like Bodhisattvas, Buddhas to be almost full-on Shambhalites. And those people somehow managed to reach the karmic right that after their physical death, they could project their astral body in Shambhala. And those people exist. They are not fixed there. Sometimes they reincarnate. Sometimes they may go to some other cosmic job. So, it's a dynamic environment, it's not a dead static environment. And therefore, Shambhala simply says there is in the invisible world uh, an island of enlightened beings, an oasis of a hundred thousand enlightened beings, some of them simple enlightened beings like Ramana Maharishi, therefore, enlightened beings which have, which held, no special paranormal abilities and some of them like Milarepa or like Saint Mark of Ethiopia who are having huge paranormal powers and therefore they could even operate some paranormal phenomena should they wish to violate the laws of nature or should they wish to break the wall of silence in a more or less visible way. Therefore, the idea is that there exists a spiritual place which is not localized clearly physically, which is an invisible world like the saints from the kingdom of heaven. But by the laws of resonance, one can resonate with those people. And uh, it's actually not your effort that is required, but more your goodwill that is required because if you try to get to milarepa and if milarepa has any reason to get back to you milarepa doesn't really need that you should uh, make most of the effort because milarepa's mind can do like this and make things happen people would say so why does it look i am now calling for Milarepa. milarepa 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 show something do something right now if you exist if you are out there no and if this is not followed by anything people will say so what does this prove well it proves that through the x-ray of consciousness milarepa knows that you are doing this because you are lacking faith and you are basically doing it to try to push your own wall of silence You are basically tempting God because you are lacking faith and you are looking for a quick fix. Let me pray for three seconds to Milarepa. Then Milarepa will do 99% of the effort and I'm going to get to witness an immediate miracle and thus I'm going to solve my own problem of doubt. But Milarepa is respecting your freedom as much as Buddha does and as much as Jesus does. Therefore, Milarepa, knowing that you are doing this from the wrong place, in the wrong way, will, of course, not answer so soon. If, however, you do some experiment for three years, Milarepa can say, actually, a joker wouldn't have done this for three years, and now you kind of earned, you have passed a spiritual test, And now you have earned the right to go there. So then a miracle may happen or some paranormal thing. And that's why remember that although this cartel of enlightened beings exist, they would not deviate from the word of God. They would not have any egoistic initiative by which they will say, Oh, God uh, decreed this. But we from Shambhala, we have got uh, some initiative and we are going to do something really, really special. No, they go by the Dharma. Dharma is the will of God. Dharma is the order of the universe. So if the cosmic consciousness has decreed that the order of the universe is this, the people from Shambhala simply say, inshallah. It's may the will of God be done. God willing, when God wills, it's going to happen. And thus, they can be extremely controlled and not have impulses of, oh, let me nevertheless give you a little demonstration. Why? Just to contradict the law of God? Then you are not, if you are from Shambhala, you are supposed to be in God's army. You are supposed to be on the side of the angels. Therefore, by definition, being in Shambhala will not allow that thing to happen. So, this Shambhala is of planetary relevance. It's not not of any relevance for people living in another galaxy or in another solar system. Something about the earth, it is made by enlightened beings who come from the history of this earth and who are concerned with the future and with the evolution of this planet, and a few others hierarchically subordinated, as I said. It is very secretive. The information of Shambhala has been very coveted, and you almost never can get right and straight from the beginning. And uh, today, I always warn people, there is a tendency to replace it with falsified information there exists a network of secret societies which have performed which have worked politically ever since the time of the templars and before the templars and they have usurped the western society and politics they have become rampant after the foundation of the united states and the french revolution this is the kind of network of secret societies that produces all the American presidents, that is governed by the people who own all the banking systems of the world, therefore all the money and the actual power. So this network of secret societies in time, they lost their purity and they actually fell on Manipura Chakra and they became involved in Satanism, egocentrism, politics, money and other terrible things and these secret societies network as soon as information about Shambhala started seeping out they using their monopoly almost over media, universities, arts, scientific research and many other parts of the society these people immediately have noticed this is a very exciting concept. People are going to fall for it very easily. And therefore, why don't we pretend we are that? Why don't we usurp it? Because we have enough operative power to just deal with a few enthusiasts who are coming up with things. In the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, there existed quite a handful of enthusiasts who were convinced by the Buddhist monks of Tibet and not only, generally of Asia, and by the Hindu Swamis and others, that there is no religion higher than truth and that there must exist a metaphysics which subordinates all the religions and all the spiritual paths. Part of this enthusiastic people who said, now it's the 19th century, now it's the 20th century, we have radio, we have Printed press, we have books, we have communication, we have scientific means of exploring, we are flying airplanes and whatever. <clears throat> and therefore, we can have a sort of scientific religion, a sort of universal scientific religion. Most of these people fell, for example, under the umbrella of what was called the Theosophical Society. In the end of the 19th century, these were the Theosophists who claim there is no religion higher than truth and therefore we want to tell you the truth, the universal truth from Buddhists, from Hindus, from Christians, from Sufis, from everybody to boil it together. This is a little bit like what we do in the metaphysical workshop for those of you who attended that workshop. The metaphysical workshop is a very, very clear reflection of this tendency which was divine and correct. The tendency was not wrong the tendency was very good even Paramahamsa Yogananda when he writes some of his texts like the one which we comment in the metaphysical workshop he is writing exactly in the vein in the in the trend of the theosophical writers so unfortunately these people started coming up with the things about Shambhala and the invisible masters that break Easter eggs one week after Easter. And immediately, the network of political societies which were ingrained, which were very much based in politics, money, media, and everything else, they seized the opportunity. They simply said, we should say that we are this thing by inventing all sorts of concepts still perpetrated today such as the Great White Brotherhood, and stuff like that, and simply bringing it forth. Starting with Alice Bailey, who did uh, one of the biggest steps in this direction, and others, Nicholas Roerich, who was just a a silly enthusiast, uh, some enthusiastic Russian painter, more carried by his enthusiasm and imagination than by any scientific, Proofs or uh, work, starting with these people, unfortunately, there has come slowly, slowly either a banalization of the subject, like, ah, oh, yeah, I heard about it and this and that. Authors like Victoria LePage, who might, I'm not uh, accusing her that she's part of some secret society network, maybe, but it's not necessary, <clears throat> who are banalizing the idea of Shambhala saying, actually, I think that Shambhala was the fact that there were about 100 wise men throughout Central Asia. Like every city, Samarkand and Bukhara and whatever, and uh, Lhasa, they had some wise Baba. And all these Babas, they were in a sort of networking connection, like they were sending letters to each other or whatever. Uh, And this is how there appeared the funny idea of some invisible net of enlightened beings and blah this is a typical atheistic materialistic solution to the issue of shambhala in a certain way banalizing it and burying it into the dust the other extreme being alice bailey and the likes of her who said oh yeah there is a great white brotherhood and uh, I'm in touch with them, and uh, I'm one of them. I I already told you too much. This kind of uh, making a secretive, maniacal thing, but which hides behind it, unfortunately, vested interests of the worst kind, such as the confusion of the humanity, confusing humanity. So that's why... Some historical things are welcome and some historical things are being exposed, especially the modern ones, of uh, as perverted information, meaning to divert people from some accurate things. In yoga, especially in Tibetan yoga, there survived things which have nothing to do with secret societies or politics or money. The yogis from India preserve some data. There are a few others like some of the Sufis with whom Gurjiev has been in touch in the beginning of the 20th century, they also had the neighborhood, the physical vicinity, and therefore some contact. I'm going to tell you more about those things in the minutes that follow. And thus, um, actually, there exists some accurate information as well, which is not adulterated by these predators who are trying to... Uh, divert people i'm not going to tell you much of what i say in the normal lectures just for your inspiration remember that shambhala is ruled by an entity by one of these spirits out of a hundred thousand buddhas one of them is chosen and it's one of the top ones because it will have to be one that has that is like milarepa or like Padmasambhava, or something like this. And because of that, therefore, one of the top enlightened beings, which means one which is full of siddhis also, one of the top enlightened beings of Shambhala, is chosen for each 1,000 years or thereabout to govern Shambhala. These are numbers and things which we get from the Tibetan tradition, from the Indian tradition, from the Bun tradition, from Mongolia, from some uh, (coughs) Central Asian Russian traditions from Turkestan and so on, Turkmenistan and so on, (coughs) Kazakhstan areas and so on, tribal traditions from there. And um, I'm going to give you some landmarks about it later because one of the purposes here tonight is to show to you that as much as we talk about these things, actually we do have some landmarks which are very disturbing. And which I never bothered to evidence in previous lectures. And uh, Shambhala is ruled, therefore, by a king of Shambhala. The king of Shambhala was called by Rene the first metaphysician who dared to write openly about this. Uh, he is, was called the king of the world. Unfortunately, in the British translation, Uh, The British authors felt for some mysterious reason that it's too much to translate Le Roi du Monde as the king of the world, and they translated it as the lord of the world. Actually, the original title is the king of the world. So Shambhala has a king, and this king is accompanied by two deputies called Mahatma and Mahanga, One of them being the responsible of the spiritual activity of Shambhala and one of them being responsible with the administrative part of Shambhala. If you would like to make a silly analogy with the workings of uh, Agama, for those of you who know how Agama works, one of them is like in charge of the teaching department and one of them is in charge of internal operations and registration and maintenance and all sorts of things. So there is one which is dealing with the spiritual part and one which is dealing with all the rest. Besides the king and the two deputies, the two two prime ministers or whatever you'd call them, then there exists a council of nine which are again chosen from the top Shambhala enlightened beings and this council which counts in all 12 people, not coincidentally because 12 is the number of the heart a number of the sun, a number related to Jesus and to tradition and to the 12 tribes of Israel and with a lot of other things. So the 12, this council of 12 is governing Shambhala. And the top is a person who is both administrative leader and spiritual leader. Ever since the secret societies networks, they started corrupted the Western world one of the first conditions which they put and which is sort of, it's letter of the law in European and North American and uh, Australian and South African and whatever Japanese types of society, like the modern society, is the separation of religion from state, which, by the way, was not what happened. In the case of Moses, he was leader, and religious prophet. In the case of David, he was prophet and king. In the case of Jesus, he was the son of God and the promised Messiah, and he was proclaimed by the people immediately, you could be our king. In the case of the Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama is Pope of Tibet and king of Tibet as well. And the list could continue with a lot of other examples and uh, this nasty nest of uh, buggers who are polluting the human society in the last 250 years they always say they should be separate they should be separate for example in Thailand one of the biggest things which is wanted by the red shirts and all the contenders is to decline the king from his position because the king is a religious king in Thailand the king is considered by the Thais to be a bodhisattva and he did lots of meditation not only in that photos that we post around but actually if you'll read the life you will see that the grand patriarch of Thailand Buddhist patriarch who died just a year and a half ago was the mentor and the guru of meditation of the king and he even brought to him teachers from other traditions to just teach him new styles of meditation such as Tibetan Lamas and others which is unheard of in this environment. And therefore, in Thailand, there exists this dangerous thing. And they say the foreign ministries they say don't go to Thailand there is a military dictatorship you've been here for a week or two or a year or two can you see it can you feel it it's perfectly fine to come to Thailand then why do the foreign ministries give bullshit announcements spoiling the tourism of Thailand because they have a grudge against the fact that the king and the people around him They keep Thailand a little bit in a more feudalistic system, not mocking in like the big pharma tried to force Thailand 15 years ago to sign papers by which the price of medicine should be regulated and therefore be high. No, because if you buy here uh, ibuprofen, it costs you two pennies. If you buy it in Germany or in Canada, it costs you a leg and an arm. Why? Why? because of the pharmaceutical industry playing games. And guess what? When they asked the king, the king said, we're never going to sign such a shit because it's going to reduce the country to poverty. We are not having so much income in Thailand and we're not going to give Big Brother the right to regulate the price of medicine in our country. So of course, Thailand and the king are on the black list of somebody and everybody would hope that uh, the king would die, the red shirts and taxin would take over, and Thailand will become modernized, and they will stop this nonsense with not selling alcohol between 2 to 5 o'clock, which is such an offense to all of us. This is what I'm talking about. So having politics, having the political and the religious things together may result in inquisition that's true it may go in other places and therefore these people have said religion should not have any connection with the political power administration and religion should be kept separate but in the case of Jesus you could not in the case of the Dalai Lama you could not and the list could continue now, uh, even the ayatollahs of Iran They actually have the right to to refuse the president and to simply say this president is Islamically not fit to rule this country, make another election. Like they have the ultimate veto right. So Iran is on the blacklist because, okay, you might disagree with their fanatic interpretation of Islam, but the basic thing is that in Iran, politics and religion are hand in hand. Unlike in France, where religion can go and grovel through the dust as much as it wants, and politics is something clean and separate from that. That's the modern interpretation. In Shambhala, the archetype, therefore, just to make the long story short, is that the king is the high priest as well. It's like the Dalai Lama of Tibet. The Dalai Lama of Tibet is a copycat of that. And uh, in Shambhala, the initiates, they serve rites. They rely much more than on rituals because such people don't really need too much ritual. They rely on meditation, contemplation, concentration, prayer, power of the mind, resonance of all kinds. And the great initiates, they meditate, they inspire, they burn the planetary karma, they build bridges. For example, the title, when you speak about the Pope, the Pope is called the Pontiff Sovereign. Why is the Pope called Pontiff? Very few people know. It comes from a Latin expression. The Pope was called Pontifex Maximus. And what does pontifex mean? Pont in Latin is a bridge. So the Pope is called the Maximus Bridge Builder. What bridges did you hear that the Pope did build lately? It's about bridges between Jesus and the world. It's bridges between Kingdom of Heaven and this world. So this is the function of the initiates. Even your guru is a pontifex maximus. Because you are an ignorant atheistic person and 12 years later, you might be an enlightened being. What, who did that to you? Your guru. Your guru actually built this bridge for you, opened this door and connected you with that. So this is the spiritual function. The spiritual function is pontifex. <clears throat> and there is an administrative function. As in a yoga school where a hundred things depend on so it doesn't rain too much through the roof when the rains are going and a hundred other boring details but without which teaching yoga would not be really easy or possible and they are the ones that supervise the planet earth they protect Shambhala just in case doesn't need much protection anyway and all that this uh, I would like you to understand, and I don't have time today to speak about this, to understand that this shows that there are two ways to reach to the kingdom of heaven. One of them is through initiation, meditation, contemplation, and the other one of them is through karma yoga, like Arjuna. Arjuna is not famous for his hatha yoga or or for his meditation, but he did a perfect karma yoga for Krishna so there are two ways the way of the monk and the way of the knight. if you feel that you are extrovert and you would rather wear a sword go for knighthood like Mahatma Gandhi Mahatma Gandhi was not a great meditator not a great practitioner of any form of yoga his maximum spiritual practices consisted in some prayers and in fasting and detox Which is good, but you cannot compare that with the practice of Yogananda Paramahamsa, who did eight hours of Kriya Yoga per day. Doesn't compare. And it doesn't mean that Mahatma Gandhi is inferior. It simply means that Mahatma Gandhi was a soldier and a knight, a crusader, and Yogananda Paramahamsa was a teacher. He was a pontifex. He was an initiator and a guru. And thus, In spirituality there are always these two pathways of evolving like in Japan in Japan you had Buddhist monks doing Zazen and you also had samurai doing Bushido both Bushido and Zazen were meant to lead you to Nirvana they were in the service of Buddha but they were very very different methods One of them required hours of contemplation every day. The other one required karma yoga, control over Manipura, surrender to the superior will, and all that stuff. So, I'm not going to insist. That's a long story which I love to tell, but I don't have time to tell that story. If you have questions about these things, ask me in the Q&A sessions. That's a good place where you can come up with me going deeper. But don't do that before you see if online there are no Shambhala lectures and listen to them and there you are going to get a much more developed story of this. So um, Shambhala constitutes an archetype like religious people knew about it and that's why every religion has a whole of holy land. Holy land in Jerusalem, holy land in Lhasa, holy land in Rome, labyrinths in cathedrals, the holy mountain Kailash or the holy mountain uh, Kush or the holy mountain I don't know. No, there are a lot of traditions which always say everything goes around the center. That center is nothing else but transmission of Shambhala in this way and uh, Shambhala is therefore related to the idea of the pole, of the North Pole. In particular, like spirituality is north and uh, unspirituality is south. I know that the New Zealanders and the Australians hate this one, absolutely, and probably the Argentinians and a few others, because generally the yogis felt that the spiritual energy goes north, 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 or actually comes from the north and the north, and there are a lot of speculations about this, That's why yogis recommend that you should do yoga facing north if possible and do relaxation with your head towards north because whatever energy flows north to south, it's supposed to be the spiritual one. And then there is also another spiritual stream of energy which flows from east to west. So east is also good. North and east are okay. South and west are not so okay. So... um, The traditional symbol of the pole and of the movement of everything around the sun is unfortunately for modern European society is the sign of the swastika, the whirling cross, with the condition that the whirling cross is whirling in the counterclockwise way, which is precisely the way in which the fascists of Mussolini first adopted it, and then from them the Nazis of the Third Reich of Hitler. This is a really disappointing thing that such a spiritual symbol has been used in politics for a murderous uh, initiative like that because today many people when they see a Vastika instead of thinking of the Dalai Lama and of Tibetan Buddhism and of Shambhala, they are actually thinking about Third Reich and racism and Nazism. But actually this symbol exists in Scandinavia in Europe the funny thing is that it exists on the oldest synagogue from Europe in Prague over the door there is a swastika actually so it's not uh, at all an anti-semitic symbol because the Jews had it as well and it's used in places widely widely far away unfortunately socially no if I would put on the logo of Agama asvastika which I would like to do because it's a real good symbol people would misunderstand that I'm having racistic or anti-semitic concepts or something like this and that's why this beautiful symbol only individually people can understand the value of it Uh, it cannot be used so much publicly again because misinterpretation is uh, uh, so big and uh, if you wish to use it, and if you can detach yourself from all this political nonsense and uh, all the other things associated to it, it is there. Uh, the Dalai Lamas uh, and the Buddhist Tibetan Buddhists, they used it in both directions as an alternative to the Taoist symbol of yin and yang. They have used it like uh, a whirling counterclockwise, which is yang, and whirling clockwise, which is yin. So, on the traditional photos of the Dalai Lama throne from Tibet before 1950, you can see in the rare photos which are taken of that time that on the throne of the Dalai Lama, there are two big svastikas, one of them clockwise, one of them counterclockwise, <coughs> as a symbol of the Tibetan tantric tradition, which uh, preaches also the balancing of the lunar and of the solar, the yin and the yang. So... Besides the yantra of Shambhala, which is not this one, it doesn't matter, but you all know it. You've seen it throughout the school. There is a big one in in Ganesha Hall where we do the Shambhala meditations every week. Um, Besides the symbol of the swastika, which can be successfully used, there exists the seal of Shambhala, which is contested by many people. Because it's so rare that people have not seen it and they are all very envious. Like, how did Swami get his hands on this thing? Where did they get it? It, It's not my merit. It was published at the initiative of a Buddhist author called Thomas Andrew, who wrote a reasonably good book about Shambhala with some candid, naive, uh, dreamy stuff, unfortunately, attached to it, but uh, of a positive intention. And uh, Thomas Andrew, who published a book uh, called Shambhala, Oasis of Light, in the English-language edition published in England, he did not publish this yantra. But when the book got translated into French, the French publisher called Albin Michel, he insisted to have this. <coughs> so he not only that he published it, Albin, the Albin Michel edition, the French-language edition of the book of Thomas Andrew, but he even published it on the cover. It's put directly on the cover of the book, so it's not invented by me or anything. It's just that I have a good Ajna Chakra, and this gives me a form of discrimination akin to clairvoyance, which makes me just open a book at the right page, put my finger and find exactly the one piece of information that I need to find from a 300-page book without really needing to read the whole book. That's a talent which some of you may acquire if you'll work on Ajna Chakra and if you'll develop your resonance with the planet Mercury. So for me it was easy in my life learning from a few gurus to pick up a few things which are quite spectacular and which we use in Agama. And uh, this example with the Yantra of Shambhala with the seal of Shambhala is an example. So working with Shambhala with a swastika with a counterclockwise golden swastika or with a yantra and the seal of shambhala they are all of them very good ideas of how to contact besides this here in agama in the third stage of agama practice which is called by the people here the chakra tapas which means after you finish your kundalini program there exists an initiation which comes when you reach to the level of ajna chakra which is ba- based on the Tibetan system of Kala Chakra and which is an initiation which goes even further than that because it provides the special mantra revealed by the Tibetan Lamas for connecting directly with the king of the world from Shambhala. In our Shambhala meditations, our, Shambhala, our leaders of the meditation They are often reading a page or two from some materials which I gave to them and there you find a lot of inspiring things which go, which give resonance. For example, the Tibetans told us the Tibetan version of the name of the king of the world, of the present king of the world who is called Rigden Jepo by Tibetan tradition and uh, as some people know, Even repeating the name is like a prayer and a mantra. If, for example, you repeat the name of Jesus for one or two hours nonstop with devotion, you will see that something very clear will happen to you. Again, a psychologist can say it's self-suggestion. I'm not going there. This matter of faith or no faith or things is something much bigger than the purpose of this satsang of tonight. But... Uh, If you repeat the name of Jesus, there definitely, with feeling, there will be some effect. Well, the name of the king of Shambhala was kept secret by many for a long time, precisely because of the same reason. In India, they didn't know his name, but they knew his title. They called him Brahmatma, the soul of the world, the soul of creation on this planet. So to conclude now because I could go on and on and on I will um, tell you some of the things which I wrote here about it. It's possible for the human being therefore to connect with Shambhala in visions in dreams, in telepathic communication, in meditation through resonance it's not 100% scientifical like you can still doubt it and uh, again this is not a demonstration and of course there are communications with Shambhala which can go even beyond that but they are extremely rare out of which of course the most pungent of them will be direct physical contact that's what I'm trying to get I'm trying to show to you also that Shambhala is not just an island floating in mid-air, a subtle land. It is that as well. But there are two additional theories emitted about Shambhala. One, great Siddhas from Shambhala, because of having great paranormal powers, it doesn't need that all a hundred of them have. It's enough that a hundred of them have such powers. And those one hundred, They asked for permission from God. They made a consecration. And if they received the green light, a go, then they simply focused their mind. And with their mind, they created an aberration in space-time, a sort of a wormhole by which they could communicate directly with the physical world or otherwise said, by which people from Shambhala, they could beam down in the physical world Or beam up back in Shambhala this made that Shambhala has created a foothold on earth actually there is a Tibetan tradition which says that they had three outposts like three little villages three little hamlets somewhere in today's China in the desert and that it was possible for Shambhala to act physically so that people from Shambhala periodically and regularly come and go throughout human history on almost a daily basis, which is a very, very interesting, very thrilling information. And uh, there is a lot of historical pointers to that. That's why it's important to remember. Even when I was in Mount Athos, I discovered that the monks in Mount Athos, without knowing anything about Shambhala, because for them this is just some pagan thing from Asia, some heathen thing from Asia, theologically speaking. But funnily enough, they have an exactly similar tradition. In Mount Athos, they say, there is a group of seven leading monks, which all of them are enlightened. And they don't live in the big monasteries, they live in hermitages and they tend to live in higher hermitages up the mountain. And even if you'd stumble over one of them, you wouldn't know that he is one of those seven because he's just a normal monk dressed in some rags and living in a hut. And you don't know that that's one of the guardians of the mountain and of the world, as they say. And if this monk thinks you are too nosy and you are going to disturb him from prayer or ask silly questions, He may even turn himself invisible or dematerialize his body for a number of hours. And when you pass by, you just find an empty hut. Or some of them can even dematerialize their hut and make the whole place invisible. And you pass by, and you don't even know one of those seven guys is there. And these seven either gather periodically or they communicate in spirit with each other. And, of course, from time to time, one of them passes away. And when one of them passes away, another one is chosen to be made. So there are always seven. And these are the guardians of Mount Athos. These are like the guardian angels of the Orthodox Christianity. These are great spirits. It's exactly the myth of Shambhala that somewhere uphill there are some <coughs> immortals, very benign immortals who live and who are connected with you in a way but not really physically because shambhala doesn't like to have physical contact because physical contact means that they have to burn your karma of ignorance by revealing a secret which otherwise would have kept you into doubt so shambhala if they reveal themselves to you more than in a dream or in a vision or in a telepathic impression or a chakra arousal on any or uh, some other things then they uh, have to actually pull the veil of illusion away 100% and to blow the wall of silence and that's why for this reason um, they won't do that because you have to follow the course of your own evolution and to reach to your own personal blossoming or conclusion so Again and again um, this is what I wanted to bring up tonight mostly in the minutes which are still left that remember that there is in the history of humanity a lot of evidence and some of it I'm going to briefly mention here which all of it is related to Shambhala and which shows that besides the fact that Shambhala is some energy resonance in your third eye Shambhala actually is physically present in a very very discreet way is physically present all the time even in the 21st century where well, you would say well how would people move without passports and barcode IDs and stuff like this for Shambhala if they work at that level has absolutely no problem there are no limitations of any kind and that's why uh, this is what we celebrate a lot. So, one statement was that Shambhala, through some of its powerful representatives, has built a sort of space time singularity, a wormhole, wormhole kind of thing, by which they can materialize, dematerialize, communicate with the physical world. The second idea being that they either created or piggybacked on some existing underground civilization. Some people keep talking about tunnels, people living in the underground, huge networks of tunnels which create an underground civilization which is having a name. It's called Agartha or Agarthi. And uh, you can read about it so many places. I remember when I was a kid, I read the Henry Gilbert version of the life of Robin Hood. And Robin Hood gets help two or three times by some little men sorts of uh, dwarves who live in some tumulus like tombs in some little mounds and they live underground like the nisse men of scandinavia like these little little fellows of 12 inches which have red hats and so on and who are all excellent like in the king of uh, in the lord of the rings where all these dwarves they are actually excellent metallurgists and manufacturers of magic swords and even the excalibur of king arthur was manufactured by the gnomes it was manufactured by this under earth thing and uh, even in the 12th century or 13th century at the time of robin hood people were talking that even robin hood was in contact with some of these underground people who gave him information, support, and he protected them and so on. Like the world is full of legends in every continent and in almost every country of the fact that there exist people, a mysterious culture that lives underground. This for some people, this has extended in the wild hypothesis, which is so wild that most people dismiss it like totally absurd. In which people speak about the hollow earth that the earth is hollow and there are two holes one on near the North Pole and one near the South Pole and actually you can go inside the hollow earth as happened to several people evidenced by different chronicles and other stories so some people would say this hollow earth this inner earth underground civilization is connected directly with Shambhala So Agartha is an outpost of Shambhala, is the right hand of Shambhala. And Shambhala sometimes comes through the underground culture and then they have some openings, some secret openings, and they can even step in the physical world or some of them can directly materialize in the physical world, do something, say something, and then go dematerialize again. Among the people that spoke about such an island of immortals which could have physical contacts even <clears throat> are the following the ancient greeks call it hyperborea or tula and they say that this are uh, again this is where the land of enlightenment is they describe it as a paradise with rivers of honey and milk and all that of thing We find a lot of references in folklore and fairy tales, I'm going to come to that. When fairy tales, whenever you have a white king, a white emperor, the white kingdom, (coughs) or a white island, or a white oasis, or a white country, or a country of immortals, or a country of eternal youth, or the land of Luz, or more recently, the land or the valley of Shangri-La, all these things through our literature and folklore are references to Shambhala, remember that there is no smoke without some form of fire somewhere. It's too much of a uniformity in all the human traditions. And people from uh, Central Asian Russia, as people from Mongolia, as Sufis from Afghanistan, as Tibetans, and as Kashmirians from, and Indians, they keep telling us, and Taoist, Chinese, and many others, They keep us telling a similar set of things. It's impossible to presume conspiracy in so many diverse places. So one should inquire, what is that? In the the Greek mysteries, Pythagoras himself and uh, Apollonius of Tiana, And in the Taoist environment Lao Tzu himself they all of them have contact with this land which for Lao Tzu is in the west from China and for Pythagoras and for Apollonius of Tiana is far far in the east they even mention they say beyond Persia and beyond whatever I'm going to read for you something in the very end, depending on the minutes which are left. So Apollonius of Tiana learned it from the kingdom of, he even knew the king, the name of the king of the world as translated for the Greeks. Just, just for curiosity, just to show you in uh, how deep detail this goes. was called Philostratus of course Apollonius being Greek would give to that ruler a Greek name he called the ruler of Shambhala Philostratus and um, in the Middle Ages there are letters which I have even kept some uh, extracts from them for you if there will be time where the Catholic Church could not admit that there would be a sort of a (coughs) land of enlightenment but it wouldn't be christian hundred percent because it wouldn't sound good for the catholic masses and the catholic masses they were like sheep they had to be governed and therefore of course one had to produce white lies and one of these white lies was that the ruler of shambhala was christian while he is way more than christian and uh, he was called prester john and allegedly he was none else than john the apostle of christ the 12th of the Apostles, who is the only one who didn't die by martyrdom and who became allegedly the ruler of this magic land to which the King Ferdinand Barbarossa, the Vatican, and a lot of other scholars were writing letters and were getting answers. So it was not just a dream of figuring out some land with peacocks and giraffes, somewhere far, far away, were talking about something uh, that was very, very concrete for them. Even Genghis Khan, the ruler, the Mongol, who reached with his riders to Vienna, to Vienna from Mongolia, on a, on a horseback. No? Genghis Khan, who was ruling China, everything. He was in Asia, he was overall. He could not get in this part of the Gobi Desert He was forbidden he was he encountered major meteorological phenomena like hail and storm like nobody has seen and so on because he passed the landmarks there were milestones which says this is the land of Shambhala and Genghis Khan said yeah and I'm Genghis Khan so Shambhala can kiss my Mongolian ass because so what no and he tried to just trespass and he couldn't. He was stopped by natural paranormal forces which scared the hell out of him and of all his people. So even during Genghis Khan, Shambhala, that part remained inviolate. And not for lack of trying, not for want of trying, because uh, actually Genghis Khan with his big Manipura had no scruples and would have gone even there. In 1648, when the rosicrucian order finished its activity because of the 30-year war between Protestants and Catholics they shut down the rosicrucian society which mysteriously seems to exist today but it's a fake one it's not the real one Uh, the rosicrucians the 12 leaders of the rosicrucian order they announced clearly that they stopped and they go to Shambhala they didn't call it Shambhala they called it the land of the immortals From where the Rosicrucian teaching came in a similar way Lao Tzu says clearly that his Taoist teaching was given to him by the immortals from the Western realm Lao Tzu says an interesting thing which is good for those of you who study Tantric yoga to remember because he says that Shambhala is predominantly under the influence of Tara of the great cosmic Tara the Chinese don't call her Tara they call her Kuan Yin. and there is an older name of her but in the resonance with the Mahavidya's from India that is the cosmic power Tara so that's also an additional thing working with Shambhala working with the Yantra working with the svastika counterclockwise working with the mantra of Kala chakra working with Ajna chakra working with the bija mantra of ajna chakra for those of you who know it working with tara all these things and all of them together they are methods which increase your connection with shambhala and they can make you obtain results faster so the sufis knew about that area and when Gurjiev finally reached to the most secretive Sufi schools in the mountains of Afghanistan, they told him that the real deal was not them. They could teach him all those methods, but that the real deal was further east, which means exactly in the Gobi area. It's defined very clearly by scholars. Giuseppe Tucci, uh, eminent Italian Tibetanologist, he did scientific work on this. I'm going to tell you a few words about that. And uh, therefore, the Sufis knew, and Gurjiev and one more person were led into that area. And Gurjiev said that he could not come back the same way. And Shambala, after he spent there a few t- days, uh, didn't uh, tell him to come the same way. They told him to go south toward Lhasa, toward the capital of Tibet, and then Gurjiev came through there and then back to Europe. Um, the not the Russians, not the Sufis, but the Mongols who know about this, they even claim that they have knowledge that Shambhala has a norm that only seven people per year could be connected physically by Shambhala for not disturbing some cosmic laws, and only one of them could be allowed to stay in Shambhala. The other six could go, speak, take some light, and then they had to return and continue with their mission with their spiritual activity the other neighbor besides the Sufis who come from the west north are of course the Central Asian Russian Buryat Mongolian and other things from Turkmenistan Turkestan Kazakhstan and those areas and you would be surprised to know that both in Christian environment and others they have contact with those things There are handbooks written by Orthodox Christian monks in which they described how they went and they met the saints of the East. The place is called by the Russians, not Shambhala. It was called Bielovodje, which in Russian means the white waters. And it is presumed that because there is a lake whose name I forgot, in Gobi there is a famous lake which is shining like silver and has salt on it because it's salty. You can see it in... uh, the way back in the famous movie, The Way Back. And that central Mongolian place, no, it's not in Mongolia, it's in today's China, Um, from that place, because it's somewhere around there, is this Belovodya, the White Waters. And there exist lots of traditions brought by the Russians in a completely different environment, even some of them Christian Orthodox, (coughs) like not Buddhist or Sufi or Hindu, which are talking very clearly about this. And the list could continue and continue uh, as we go to the latest ones. I noted somewhere here, even like the Tibetans have a lot, and the Chinese and the Tibetans have a lot of them, and uh, there are even Catholic missionaries. For example, One of them is Juan Cabral, and the other one I forgot. It's written somewhere here. For example, Father Stephen Cachela, a Portuguese Jesuit missionary who went to Tibet to convert them to Catholicism, not succeeding, of course, recorded the existence of a, fam- a famous country during his state of 23 years at Shigatse in Tibet where he died in 1650 the Lamas had developed such respect for him although they didn't convert to his religion that they even offered their services to take the Padre to this secret place they simply said you want us to take you to Shambhala we'll take you there Chang Shambhala and uh, his companion in the northern Shambhala it's called by the Tibetans northern Shambhala because there is a small city near Varanasi north of Varanasi in India a village more which is called Shambhala so not to have any thing any confusion the Tibetans have called it Chang Shambhala which means the northern Shambhala like not the Indian Shambhala the real Shambhala the Shambhala from the north the companion another chronicler from the Catholic Church John John Cabral Juan Cabral wrote in 1625 that in uh, this Shambhala is definitely not in the direction of China, but in what the maps of those days called the Great Tartaria, which is somewhere towards Mongolia, exactly in that desert there. And uh, they were these were the first Europeans who got a record of Shambhala from the Tibetan angle, from the Chinese angle. I have here so many... Um, No, I can quote just a few of them, Uh, Dr. A.H. Franke, a German philologist and geographic explorer who did not hesitate that the reality of Shambhala was so vivid to the guides and the Sherpas in the area that in some, they simply refused to go in those areas. Like you couldn't hire guides and people to take you there because they simply refused to go and they said you must be a stupid Faran who just wants to flex his muscle and tries to his power. But we know, and we're not going to go there, just because you want to demonstrate your ego and all that. So, the Russian explorer Prievalsky, a century ago, he wrote about Shambhala. He says another very interesting tale concerning this place called Shambhaling. He says, there is a and he gives a whole uh, legend about it that there is this one in India and then there is the Chang Shambhala the north Shambhala and people say that uh, there's there's never been starvation there that poverty is unknown there and that people describe it as the land of milk and honey I'm sorry for those of you who have allergy to milk but in the old treatises paradise was always described as the land of milk and honey I don't know why some people today malign milk a lot, while the old ones they thought it was a sign of paradise. After all, it's a matter of uh, change of values, I get. So the Italian Tibetanologist Giuseppe Tucci researched it, and he gives all the Tibetan manuscripts and all the research which the Tibetans allowed him to have, and he shows the exact uh, latitude, longitude of the area where Shambhala. It must be according to all those manuscripts because there is a Panchen Lama who even made a map of how to get to Shambhala and was giving permits for it. It is in the Kanjur. It is in the Tanjur. It is, uh, you know, even a quote of some Chinese doctor who described his visit to the valley of Shambhala in the same area in the Mongolian desert together with a Nepalese yogi. And um, even if you want to see how this goes to the West, here is an interesting little paragraph. Uh, These super beings have actually been seen even by Europeans. Sir Hugh Rice Rankin, a Scottish baronet who went to Harrow and served as an officer in the Royal Dragoons. This being said by the author like this was not a hippie, right? This was a very square Scottish nobleman had been practicing Mahayana Buddhism for many years. And this is what he said in 1959. That was way before the hippie invasion and all that. It's part of our known beliefs that the five bodhisattvas, that five bodhisattvas control the destiny of this world. They meet together once a year in a cave in the Himalayas to make their decisions. One of them lives permanently on the higher Himalayas. One of them lives on the Scottish Cairngorms. My wife and I clearly saw this Bodhisattva when going through the Larig Garu Pass about 10 years ago. So here is some guy concerned with Tibetan Buddhism who seemed to be a square ex-military and who says there's a number of people that control everything. And one of them actually lives in the Scottish mountains. And on Easter, when he eats his red eggs, you can see them down river. This is how these legends appear. They are all over the place. I want to show to you that this is not just a local stupid thing. It's all over humanity. It's very difficult to understand how humanity has created the same set of myth and legends everywhere without a conspiracy or without communication uh, of this kind. And, uh, again, there are medieval maps. Uh, there are historians, like in the 12th century, Otto Freising and others, who write letters to these people. There is, uh, in 8- 1177, the Pope Alexander III addressed a letter to this illustrious and magnificent king of the Indies. And, of course, he wrote, and Frederick Ferdinand Barbarossa even got an answer. There is a letter preserved in the German archives, where there is a letter which comes from Prester John, from some unknown place in Asia. Um, I could continue so much more. Uh, The point is made, I don't need to make. Um, For those of you who will bother to study, you will see that there is an uncanny number of evidences which are disturbing and which simply shows that this Shambhala story Is not just a meditation subtle thing. It has a very, very powerful physical angle and connection to it. And this physical angle and connection to it makes it, at least to me, I don't know how it works for you. But to me, it always has made it very, very powerful, very exciting. Very exciting. Because I like these physical things. In this life, I did not go physically in Shambhala, but I openly confess to everybody that even today, if any one of you would know the physical way to go there, I would like to pay a visit. That means it's absolutely nothing wrong with enthusiasm and curiosity and with the, the thing of it. And if Shambhala is more than what I have experienced about Shambhala until now, which means in my meditations, in my chakras, in my mind, in my paranormal experiments. And I did have some Shambhala uh, experiments because from the beginning of my spiritual life, I have been very thrilled by the subject of Shambhala. The subject of Shambhala is one of my favorite subjects in spirituality for a variety of reasons. And uh, the fact that it has a physical angle to it I can only be sorry that I have not been chosen for some physical visitation until now and I still hope it will come or that I'll go there one day but uh, remember that this makes things uh, very present it's not a joke like the word there were the guys with the hollow earth they proposed and the funny thing it never worked because of the wall of silence partly they proposed either a huge hovercraft expedition or hiring a Russian icebreaker for hundreds of thousands of uh, euros and actually going to the latitude and longitude where the hollow earth hole is supposed to be somewhere, north, somewhere between the Russian coast and the North Pole. And uh, they are very, 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 very solid. I'm telling it to you as I being an engineer, person who does not believe in nonsense that some people claim that they do some things it's I'm always very skeptical to these things before I see some evidence and to a person who studied science physics quite a bit and I can tell you that even this wild hypothesis of the Hollow Earth does have an edge to it and cannot be absolutely dismissed not before you have been with your own feet or hovercraft or Russian icebreaker right there and have seen for yourself. But the funny is, thing is that the people who could go, they are not interested mysteriously, mysteriously. Of course, conspiracy theories say that the Americans tried to go to the southern port of this and all the aircrafts from an aircraft carrier, they, they were just destroyed instantaneously. So, that we're talking about some technology which is way, way, way ahead of us. And then they simply put a cordon around it and they say, if we can't go, nobody goes. Uh, remember that this wall of silence manifests in absurd ways. I have seen more than 10 years ago a BBC documentary which describes that in today's Turkey, maybe very, very close to Armenia and to Kurdistan, Iraq, there exists. Most probably, with a 90% probability, the Ark of Noah, which means a wooden square boat of about 200 meters in length, and it is caught in a glacier. So only a corner of it can be seen clearly, and actually some people took splinters of wood out of it, and so on. Like everybody bickers that religion is uh, fake and all these are legends and so on wouldn't it be interesting if you would be from National Geographic or BBC to just invest hundred thousand dollars and actually fly a helicopter there or something just go there make a deal with the Turkish government or something and just go with some cameraman and with some carbon dating instruments or like imagine what would be if you would be the person bringing evidence of the existence of the Ark of Noah that the Ark of Noah really existed, and it's right, and here is a piece of it. And it can be carbon dated. It's like, are you insane? I mean, there are people who would lose a leg and an arm for much less than that. There are journalists who, to get a Pulitzer Prize, they would sell their mom down the drain, you know. And this, the Ark of Noah, is illustrated in a BBC documentary. Nobody goes to touch it, and you haven't heard about it. And it's in Turkey, you know, it's not in uh, some war zone from ISIS or something like this, or maybe today it is, I don't know, you know. It's like, this is what I'm saying. The wall of silence is a very powerful force, and there are many other things, interests, and so on. So even this thing, you know, that it could be possible that there is an underground civilization, hollow earth or not, it's very exciting. It is said that Marconi disappeared in a volcano in the south of Venezuela. Google it on the Internet and see what happened with Marconi and a few others. There are a few others including a couple of famous UFO researchers who disappeared. Exactly. I mean, you can say the CIA took them and killed them and threw them into a ditch so they won't be fine. Maybe. But that's why I'm saying... There, is a, there are a lot of unknown things there. And this thing of Shambhala is right on the edge of the miraculous, of the magic, of the mysterious. And it is worth it researching. Believe me, if these guys would have gone through with their project with the Russian icebreaker, I would have tried to raise the money to be on that icebreaker for a couple of weeks. No? Like, why not go? and see if it's there or not of course uh, many of you say swami you kept making mentions about a geographical area called gobi inside the gobi desert which today technically is inside communist china do you still think uh, the chinese communists they have an area where they can't go actually we have been told by the tibetan lamas more than 50 years ago that because of this because it would be too much of a demonstration of force to kind of keep bay the Red Army, know that every summer the Red Army is sending another 100,000 people with helicopters and cannons who try to get in there and Shambhala has to wipe them out. And that will happen for the last 30 years nonstop. It would be blowing the cover of Shambhala. It will be actually violating one of the basic principles. And then they said, that Shambhala are not wanting to put up with them not because they couldn't but because it doesn't serve their purpose of anonymity Shambhala has closed down those outposts in Gobi and today if it has outposts we don't know where they are three versions which circulate today through the esoteric world are a place in Antarctica called Neuen Schwabenland because it used to belong to Germany in the old days. One mine shaft in Chile called Colonia Dignidad, a mine included in a colony in Chile, and the third one is a volcano whose name I forgot but is pro- I can get it for you or you can find it on the internet, a volcano in the south of Venezuela basically on the borderline to Brazil somewhere in the deep deep jungle in places where people are still cannibal and the likes of us don't go simply so um, i'm simply telling you all these things because i want to encourage you to think about it do some study because for me this physical infiltration that shambhala is not only a place of meditation and the subtle energy and a concept but it's also a physical presence uh, makes things a hundred times more exciting, and it makes things, you uh, know, uh, again much much more stimulating. It's up to you to do your own research about these things, and to see if you have any enthusiasm about this. And if any one of you wants to create a Shambhala club in Agama, I will be the first member of that club, um, because the subject has always been a great joy for me and i have uh, worked with it spiritually but also i love the things which are down to earth with this we have finished my presentation of tonight inspiring you to join the sunday meditation and inspiring you to join our weekly meditations many people who are new because people in agama periodically renew others and others are coming they don't understand why of all the things we have a Shambhala meditation, and the attendance is sometimes very low. Uh, That's why, because whenever I come to say things like this and when I, then a number of people are going through the roof with enthusiasm, and then Shambhala again becomes a fashion in Agama until other people need to be informed about it again and again. So that's why this thing with Shambhala is a periodic thing here in Agama, so that people can be motivated also about this question can I just do my Shiva meditations or my sadhana in yoga and if I don't know about Shambhala will this uh, handicap me spiritually not really like you can Ramakrishna didn't speak openly about Shambhala and probably neither did Ramana Maharishi or others so you can reach a state of Samadhi and enlightenment And when you will reach that state, probably Shambhala will show itself to you in your meditation. They will make themselves known to you if they feel that they need. Or if you reach a state of clairvoyance, of ajna chakra development, you might have your own visions and things. Like Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, one of the fathers of theosophy, one of the mothers of theosophy, she discovered it through clairvoyance, not through enlightenment the third eye she didn't reach states of Samadhi but she reached some very powerful states of clairvoyance and then the invisible masters came to her and talked to her and they revealed to her a few very important things so that was the purpose of this lecture and with this Shambhala Easter meditation we are going actually to finish our series of Easter different meditations with this, we stop for tonight. It's late already. Namaste to all of you. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com downloads.